Are you listening? Kiteimaska. Ascolt. Titko Geshmika. Stai ascoltando. Vi slušajte. Nejde tima. A tem makšivim. Estas escuchando. Hören Sie zu? Darigushmidi. Damesam rosho. Heltesma. The Global Voices Podcast. The world is talking. Are you listening? Hello world, this is the reboot of the Global Voices podcast, and I'm your audio friend Jamila. Summing up Global Voices in a half-hour podcast is no mean feat, but that's okay. We plan on doing this until it's either impossible or the world stops talking. As you may know, Global Voices is an international community of bloggers who report on blogs and citizen media from around the world. However, every now and again, a blog emerges that causes us to ask questions and look hard at the blogs that we read every day. The Gay Girl in Damascus blog did just this by fooling a lot of people worldwide into thinking that a lesbian blogger in Syria was initially raising her voice and then very possibly in grave danger. It turned out that the blog was not as it seemed and the author was in fact an American man living in Scotland. Moves like this can bring about doubt for editors working with bloggers on a regular basis, and the Global Voices community had a lot to say about the way we deal with anonymous blogs. I called upon members of the Global Voices community to discuss this particular blog and what it means for other online writers and editors. Gillian York in the United States is on the Middle East North African team at Global Voices and also on the board. Apana Ray is in Kolkata. She's part of the South Asia team at Global Voices as an author. And Tarek Amar is in Egypt. He covers mainly Egyptian news and blogs. I started by asking Gillian how she first became aware of the Gay Girl in Damascus blog and her reaction to what it turned out to be. I had first heard about the blog when the author actually befriended me on Facebook about a year ago. My initial response when I read that the blogger had been kidnapped was to call for people to pay attention to make sure that the story was being covered. And so I, I initially believed that it was real. This case has raised all sorts of concerns for media outlets through mainstream broadcasting, as well as social media and news blog aggregators. Aparna, what were your concerns when this story was revealed, I guess, and we all found out that Amina, the character in the Gay Girl in Damascus blog, was actually a middle-aged guy called Tom? I mean, I was following the story and I had uh, read Gillian's post and I was reading about it online. This is not the first time this has happened. We've seen cases like this before. But this was like one of, you know, it was a really sensitive kind of case. We were trying to get stories out of Syria where it's quite difficult to get stories out of that place. And there were a lot of activists and, you know, it was like a serious, sensitive issue kind of thing. And then it got revealed as a hoax. And my first concern was that, you know, we are not really reporters on the ground. So we follow blogs, Twitter and all social media. And then we, you know, round it up and we report that. So we amplify that voice. But over the years, we are seeing more and more that Global Voices has become a quotable source. We break stories and these voices are being picked up. And we, whether we like it or not, or whether that was our initial intention or not, we are also seen as a newsroom. You know, so how do we balance it? Because my concern was that, you know, when something breaks as a hoax, it does take away perhaps a little bit of the credibility of the news source as well. And what we do is we sort of look at the mainstream media still as the people who are supposedly doing the running around on the ground. And, you know, with cases like this, it sort of calls that into question. Therefore, I was thinking that what should be the future of our kind of reporting or aggregation or whatever? Is there some way we should 
uh, sort of categorize posts because you know we do put in a lot of effort and i'm sure jillian and tarik will agree that we all put in a lot of effort in trying to verify especially when the cases are serious jillian we also work with advocacy cases with global voices and as apana says very sensitive areas of online living most of us were somewhat fooled initially by this character but is there a danger that people will think that bloggers are crying wolf and ignore people when they could actually be in some real trouble well i mean the thing here is that there's a history of anonymous and pseudonymous blogging in the region and so you've got bloggers like salam pax from iraq who for years blogged under a pseudonym and you know was a trusted story and when he was reported on by mainstream media you know those mainstream media entities had often actually met him or spoken to him you know in this case i think that we need to take seriously the manner in which this person was promoted and so it's not simply an issue of should we continue trusting anonymous bloggers but you've also got the issue of mainstream media reporting on a blogger claiming to have conducted interviews with her when they had not actually met her you had this blogger putting her real name on the blog, you know, which lends a sort of credibility to it. But none of the journalists who spoke with her via email actually went and fact-checked that name, went and, you know, tried to find people who knew her. And so, you know, I mean, I do hear the concerns that perhaps we need to be more skeptical, but I think in this case, it actually could have easily been disproven had people gone that route. Tarek, there are cases where verification standards and our faith in where we get our information from can be shaken. Most people online will look closely at tweets and blogs, but I understand that you've had trouble in the past when it seemed that official sources may not have actually been right themselves. Yes, exactly. I, I totally understand the apparent concern about the credibility of bloggers and, and people who are, might have been abusing pseudonyms or blogging anonymously. But the fact is that we also had fallen prey to some kind of another hoax. But this time it wasn't people using pseudonyms or anything. It was uh, the official media here. It was newspapers, almost all of them, almost all of the TV, TV channels, uh, even the celebrities, they were giving testimonies on, on, on TV. All happened during a football match between Egypt and Algeria. And at that time, it was the Football World Cup qualification, and we didn't succeed to get qualified. So after the match, the official TV started spreading news about the fact that Algerian fans started attacking people, and they were brutally killing them or hurting them. The rumors were spread all over the media here. And we as bloggers fell prey to this. We started to blog against Algerians. And then after almost one year, we realized that all of this was just bluffing and all those official media and, and celebrities were just lying to us. Nothing seriously happened there. It was like the normal stuff that happened in every football match, but being more brutal. So how would you try to check something like that, Tarek? Most of us put a lot of faith in mainstream media and believe when we see news reports that that is probably true. Did anybody seem to question that at the time? Yes, we were, but you know, during that issue of the, of the Syrian girl, the media was hungry for a face for the Syrian revolution. And this was also the, the case with the football match I'm talking about, because at that moment, people were also hungry for being qualified to the World Cup. They were just waiting for something to blame. That's why the logic wasn't applied then. And people just believe without even giving themselves a chance to think again of if what is being said is true or it's to be trusted or it's just something that you cannot trust because there wasn't a single video or, or a photo for what they have been claiming. It was just claims. 
Aparna, just looking at the topics here, as Tarek has pointed out, with Amina's blog and with the, the situation with the football match, these are topics where emotions are quite high and it's very serious and very sensitive. Do you think that the topics involved influence our willingness to believe that something is true? To a lot of extent, we do initially believe a lot of things which pass off as news. But I think the seriousness lies elsewhere. We have had some time ago when journalists in Bangladesh, they sort of picked up some news item from The Onion. And in fact, they didn't realize what kind of a news source it was. And they were reporting it on it seriously. But the matter was not something worth raking up emotions. And it died down and, you know, people just forgot about it. In 2008, we had a case in Bangladesh where one of their film directors put in a news and it was reported by international media. It was reported on AFP. Then it got picked up by The Guardian. It was there in the BBC and all across that he was building a lifelike replica of the Taj Mahal. And for people of Bangladesh who would not be able to visit India because it was very expensive and getting visa, etc., could just go outside Dhaka and see this life-size replica. And the international media, they without putting it within quotes, they sort of said, you know, it's being built with diamonds and Italian marble. And it sort of created a huge buzz in the blogosphere. In fact, media started playing it up so much so saying that, you know, there's been a fracas between India and tensions are high between India and Bangladesh and copyright issues were brought up and the High Commission got involved and stuff like that. People flocked to the site and it was a very shabbily made. I mean, no one in their right mind would even think that it was Taj Mahal or anywhere close to it. But he was charging uh, entry fees and, you know, he made a good uh, killing. And it was the bloggers who finally started putting up YouTube videos, writing and putting up pictures. And then we, we sort of covered it on uh, Global Voices. But this is one kind of story. Okay, some people went there they paid some money, they were disappointed, but that's at a different level, you know, even if this kind of thing goes viral, there's no chance of people getting hurt. Whereas we have the other kind of stories where, you know, there are serious chances of people actually getting hurt or exposed as in the gay girl in Damascus, where maybe a lot of other people who were anonymous reached out to her and became known in the process or whatever. So I think the seriousness, on the other hand, as Gillian rightly pointed out, that on which side do we err? Do we err on the side of writing about this person and playing up her voice? Or do we sort of be more skeptical? But at the same time, you know, these are two different kinds of stories. And in some cases, I think whatever the topic is, both kind of news stories go viral. Gillian, when it comes to working with bloggers and trying to verify the genuine aspects of what they are writing about or what they're working on, is it now maybe a matter of trying to return to some very old-fashioned journalistic principles of being able to speak to somebody on a phone and hear their voice or to see them face-to-face? -face? I mean, obviously, it's very difficult if you're working with a global network. One of the ways that Global Voices has always managed to operate, I mean, at least in, in my region, is by relying on the wealth of networks, right? So you've got on the Middle East and North Africa team, we've got people in just about every country that we write about, and those people are all members of their local blogging and social media communities. I would say the vast majority of Global Voices authors on our team know another blogger in their country. I mean, I think that's generally true. And so a lot of times when you're reporting on something being said on a blog or in social media, you can 
effectively ask someone, you know, do you know this person? Should I trust this person? When I was reporting on tweets coming out of Tahrir Square in Cairo, you know, I am <laughs> not Egyptian, have not been to Egypt. And so I was relying on people that I knew um, to sort of inform me who was trustworthy, who was actually there, and to provide a little bit of extra context. I know we've also done the same in the past where we don't know necessarily a blogger's gender when it's not obvious from their blog. I recall a lot of emails, you know, just sort of on the list, uh, does anyone know this person? And We've always kind of done things that way, and I think that that's really important moving forward, that maybe you don't actually have to have met someone in person, but someone you have met has met that person at some point or another. And so you're really just, rather than you know necessarily speaking to every blogger on the phone, you're relying on your network to verify for you. Tarek, what would you like to see maybe in place to try and help us all when it comes to verifying information? I really don't know if we should really verify information. We are just reporting what the bloggers are saying. And most of the time it's, it's their own emotion and their own point of view. It's not it's not reporting news because most of the time we are, the news are already reported and we are just reporting people's comments on those news. So what do you think about the verification of blogs? Is it okay if it's just opinion? What would this mean for those who need anonymity for the sake of safety? Tell us your thoughts on the podcast and these topics by dropping me a line to podcast at globalvoicesonline.org. Do you know about Global Voices Advocacy? With Global Voices Advocacy, we seek to build a global anti-censorship network of bloggers and online activists throughout the developing world dedicated to protecting freedom of expression and free access to information online. Find out more at globalvoicesonline.org. One of the many cool things about Global Voices is a rather obvious thing. People from anywhere you can think of may be writing about their experiences, observing current events, and showing us all what is happening around them. This means we get to listen to them too. Have you been to Guinea-Bissau lately? Well, if you haven't, allow me to hand over to one of our editors to take you there. favorite parts about my job as a director of Rising Voices is being able to visit our grantee projects around the world. My name is Eddie Avila and I recently visited the West African nation of Guinea-Bissau where I met the young people behind the project, Youth Voices of Bandin and Enteramento in the capital city of Bissau. As one of the newest members of our Rising Voice community, we'll be supporting their project as they teach members of their cultural groups how to use digital tools like blogs and digital photography as a way to show the world that the country is much more than poverty and civil unrest. There is a rich cultural tradition, as demonstrated by the group Neto Zibandin. It provides creative outlets for the youth in the neighborhood, including dance and theater, as well as the women's singing group known as the Manjuandade. The group provides moral support and fellowship among the women, and it also gives them the opportunity to sing some of their cherished traditional songs sung in the Creole language. Sitting in a circle, each group has its own unique style, but the traditional rhythm and instruments remain the same. In addition to the drums and blocks of wood that the women tap together, there is one bellowing instrument called a tambo de agua, or water drum. A hollowed out gourd sits in a tub of water where it is hit with the palms of the hand and the resulting sound resembles a deep bass drum. The men from the neighborhood provide the percussion accompaniments. On 
this particular day, the women were practicing for an upcoming performance, but I also suspect that it was a special showing just for me, since Rising Voice would be visiting and it would be the beginning of our partnership. Not that I minded, since it was one of the highlights of the trip. We visited the various grantee projects so that we could get to know the people behind the project, making it easier to work together virtually, but also to help capture some of the context in which the project will operate. At this particular moment, when the Majuandati group started its performance, the battery on my video camera ran out. I then remembered that I had a cell phone with an audio recorder, and what you hear is the sounds of the group. I realize that not everyone is as fortunate as I am to be able to visit Guinea-Bissau but it is my hope that by capturing the sounds of the day, it means that others can get a better feeling of what it's like to be in Guinea-Bissau. And that's the general philosophy behind Rising Voices, that community groups can use these tools themselves to showcase their own country on their own terms. We want the members of the same group that is singing here to be able to record their own performances and upload them to the internet themselves. They can tell the world that there is so much more to Guinea-Bissau and at the same time, make the world an even smaller place. Eddie Avila there, sharing a musical experience from Guinea-Bissau. Do you know about Global Voices Lingua? Project Lingua amplifies Global Voices stories in languages other than English with the help of volunteer translators. It opens the line of communication with non-English speaking bloggers and readers of Global Voices by translating content into other languages. Find out more at globalvoicesonline.lingua. Now we've heard some of the issues and journeys taken by Global Voices, but what is it like to be one of the editors? Luckily, Feruza Shukovaye, Global Voices Spanish language editor, took a moment to talk to me about working on the site and how to organize a global network of Spanish language speakers. I started with Global Voices as an author. It was in 2009, and actually it was through Jillian York. I'd been interning with her when she was the project coordinator of OpenNet Initiative at Berkman in Harvard University. And I knew she was a Global Voices author, and I, I'm a journalist. I was doing research on different online publications, alternative media, and blogs. So I learned about Global Voices, and I saw that there wasn't a lot of coverage on Puerto Rico. So through Jillian, she introduced me to Janine Mendez Franco, who is the editor of the English-speaking Caribbean. She's from Trinidad and Tobago. And I started covering the Puerto Rican blogosphere. So uh, you're from Puerto Rico, is that right? Yes, I am from Puerto Rico. I am half Iranian, half Persian. My father's from Iran. My mother is Puerto Rican, and I am Puerto Rican. I was raised in, in Puerto Rico, yes. Working with people online, did it change your view of what you knew about your home country to have this kind of layer of digital citizens as well? Oh, yes, definitely. I'm a journalist, so I've been a, a reporter at one of the major newspapers in Puerto Rico for almost eight years. And I left the newspaper when the convergence, let's say the digital convergence was just starting. So I really didn't live through the whole digital revolution of that newspaper and of newspapers in Puerto Rico. I've lived it, but only like more as a reader and collaborator, not as a reporter. 
So my experience was completely different, right? It was every day on the streets, I mean, reporting what was happening every day. I used to report on mostly human rights issues, violence issues, violence against women, against children. I used to go to the communities. I also did police reporting and and political reporting. So now when I came to live to Boston to study, that was when I started with Global Voices. I discovered this whole new and different world that was going on about all of these blogs, all of these people thinking and reflecting and commenting and debating on all these issues through their blogs and through social media also, that was extremely different from what I was used to do as a journalist. How much time per week do you dedicate to working on the Global Voices site, to being an editor? It is a part-time job and I dedicate more or less 20 hours, sometimes a little more. It depends on how much information, how much breaking news, especially in the regions. And for instance, in the last few weeks, there's a lot of things that have been going on in the regions. I cover, for instance, Spain, all the protests in Puerto Rico. Obama was recently there. There was 50 years that a president of the United States didn't visit Puerto Rico. And uh, in Cuba, there's always lots of things happening, which is pretty incredible, the very vibrant blogosphere in Cuba. And you've mentioned also having a job and doing a PhD as well as this. Is it difficult to balance things? It is very challenging. At first, I thought, oh, I'm not going to be able to do all of this because I'm a full-time doctoral student and I'm also a teacher's assistant. So I have that job also. And I'm also a mother and I'm a Global Voices editor, so I have a lot of things to do. (laughs) But I've been able to do it and I'm really happy. It's very challenging at times, but it's rewarding. I love everything that I'm doing right now. And I love being an editor at Global Voices and having learned so much from so many wonderful people and from so many wonderful places. How do you then keep across all of these Spanish language contributors? What's it like having a relationship with so many different people when they're bringing stuff to Global Voices? When I started as an editor, I had to start from zero, let's say, because I had to start recruiting people through online recruiting, of course. And that was very intense because I had to do a lot of research, of course, Puerto Rico, I knew much more, and I had a more clear idea of who I wanted to write to and ask them if they would like to be Global Voices authors. But for instance, I had to start from zero practically in Cuba. So that was extremely intense until finally, after reading blogs and reading news and looking what's going on, for instance, the Cuban case is very intense because it is quite contentious, let's say. There's a lot of different voices and uh, very strong voices on the blogosphere and through social digital publications and social media. So it's very difficult to recruit someone that you that you will feel comfortable, that will feel comfortable writing, let's say, for Global Voices. Are there places that you would like to hear from that you don't think have enough representation yet? One place that I am trying to have more representation from is Dominican Republic. Right now, I believe there's a lot of things happening in Dominican Republic. I really want to try to increase our coverage of Dominican Republic. That would be one of my most recent projects, so to say. Before that, I wanted to really get to know all these 
uh, blogs from the Latin America and the Caribbean diaspora in the United States, for instance. And we're just starting to explore all of that that's going on in the U.S. with all of these blogs, some of them in Spanish, a lot of them also in English or some bilingual even. Also in Europe, I'm sure in other countries of Europe, there must be Spanish blogging, I mean, from people from Latin America and the Caribbean, which would be wonderful also to discover eventually. So what is the most difficult part of your job and what is the best part? So the most difficult, I would say, was doing recruiting. I would say recruiting authors and looking for authors will be engaged and also passionate about their work with Global Voices. I wouldn't say maybe difficult, but one of the most challenging parts And for instance, in in the diaspora bloggers, it's different to even start looking for all of these blogs, interesting projects from immigrants and and, uh, in the United States, for instance, in this case, is also challenging. So I would say that is the most challenging part. And the most wonderful is just being able to work with all these wonderful people. Really, I I feel so happy to have first met and being able to be a part of this wonderful group of people from all over the world who are so passionate and engaged with what they're doing with their ideas their principles right and they feel so passionate about what they think yeah it I think that would be the best thing I I really love my work at Global Voices. Part of doing these interviews is so that we can get to know a little bit about you as well as the things that you do so tell us something about yourself that maybe we might not guess or we might not know. Oh something about myself My name, Firuze, means turquoise, the stone. This turquoise can be found, a lot of turquoise in Iran. And I have a beautiful 10-year-old daughter. Her name is Marina. I'm studying my PhD now, and I'm studying the internet and media. I love Puerto Rico, truly. I really love, I'm from old San Juan, from the colonial part of the city. And I was raised there, and uh, I can't wait to go back. Well, that's all for now, but rest assured there's plenty to be said and we'll be back with more. If you'd like to get in touch about this podcast, maybe you have a comment about the topics we've covered, or maybe you want to say something in sound, then you can drop me a line to podcast at globalvoices.org. The world is talking. I hope you've been listening. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Global Voices. You can follow Global Voices stories on Facebook too.